This is Joel Robertson of Forgotten Flicks Remembers and the upcoming Thriller Movie Podcast. And you're listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Hi, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. October, best month of the year, is finally here, and to celebrate Halloween this month on Horror Movie Podcast, we're bringing you in-depth feature reviews and analysis of the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, and we're doing it Horror Movie Podcast style. So this is episode 70, and it is the first part of a five-part series. And tonight we're going to be reviewing Wes Craven's 1984 film, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And we usually don't reveal spoilers on this podcast, but just to give you fair warning up front, this episode will be filled with major plot spoilers for the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And I'm your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh, and I'm your boyfriend now, Jason. <laughs> Just don't stick your tongue through the microphone, okay? okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. Anyway, let's get down to it. I mean, everybody, it seems like our listenership has waited for this for at least a year or so. And so without any further delay, let's move into our feature review of Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet. But something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? You just see cuts happening. What is that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the jar and puking since he saw it. You're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Okay, I think most of us were children of the 80s. Doc Shock here was probably macking on chicks in the 80s. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, yeah, well, a- later, later in the 80s, yes. Okay. Later in the 80s. <laughs> I'm just messing. Okay, so this came out in 1984, and so it seems to me that the first place to start, and it seems to the Wolfman as well, would be like the nostalgia behind this. And I just want to put something controversial out there right up front. The first thing I want to say is, especially upon revisiting this film again, I really believe that the love that's out there for this movie is based, I bet, 85 to 90% in people's nostalgia surrounding it. Ooh, controversial <laughs> statement. I know. I'm, I'm yeah. swinging. That's a shot across the bow to all you Freddy fans. Because honestly, like, as I revisit this movie, which we'll get into, um, you know, I see some merits, but a lot of it is like, well, because <laughs> I'll tell you guys that this is where I'm coming from with Freddy. Freddy was actually, quote unquote, my monster. I was born in 1976. And it's weird because 
I, I actually, when I was younger, I hardly heard about Michael Myers very much at all. I did hear about Jason Voorhees, um, especially since my name was Jason. And on like Friday the 13th in school, they'd always bring it up. But the monster I heard about most from other kids that my peers were really into was uh, Freddy Krueger. And that was really brought to a fever pitch for me when Will Smith, at the time, The Fresh Prince came out with A Nightmare on My Street, which was like around 88, you know, so that's like four years later. But that's when I really started like embracing this. But um, so even though I don't love Freddy, he's kind of my monster that I associate my childhood with more than any others. What about you, Wolfman? Um, this was definitely a monster that terrified me as a kid. This was a, this was a thing that I, I just remember seeing the iconic movie poster, the VHS cover. This is one of the best horror movie posters of all time, I think. Um, and it scared the crap out of me. And yeah, this was like in the ether growing up in the eighties. Like this was just <laughs> yes. like, everybody was talking about it. And this was something that I didn't watch, but I had one friend who, always wanted me to sleep over at his house and watch horror movies with him. And he was so into Freddy and that fact creeped me out about him. Like I was a little <laughs> bit scared to like go to sleep near him, you know, at mm-hmm. night in our sleeping bags. And, uh, and I think I mentioned this before during our scream franchise review, but yeah, he's the one that also gave me the cassette single of nightmare on my street. And so that was also a big touchstone <laughs> in my childhood. Um, nice. But yeah, I mean the idea of, I had had a cousin who fell on a fire as a kid and her skin got all melted and she had to have skin grafts and, and everyone called her Freddy Krueger. And the idea of that was really scary to me though, like seeing kind of burn victim unit as a kid and the reality of that. And then that made me very kind of queasy, like thinking about Freddy Krueger as a child, like it kind of creeped me out quite a bit. Um, but yeah, the claw looked so cool, and I remember the like the the cool kids whose parents didn't care what they did got to like dress up like Freddy for Halloween and have this awesome claw walking around school and stuff. Yeah. Now, did they make it or did they buy the really nice store bought plastic I, one that you could get at Spencer's? I assumed it was the plastic one, but I don't I don't actually know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In my in my memory, it's the nice plastic one. Right. Right. Okay. I got you. Now, Doctor Shock, I understand. He put knives on his glove. It was weird. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, right. <laughs> nice. Now, by this time, I think I think I had been done. Actually, by '84, while I still was very much into Halloween, like the season of Halloween, I never actually dressed up for Halloween anymore. So I didn't uh, get the glove or anything like that. But see, it's funny for me. Freddie came out. I had already experienced. Um, you know, we had had cable for a few years, and and you know. I had already experienced like the Friday the 13th and, um, uh, you know, all the other horror movies that, that would play like the shining and, and a lot of other, well, uh, mostly like slasher wise, you know, even things like fun house and, 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 you know, movies like that. Uh, so by the time nightmare on Elm street came around, um, you know, and I was a fan of it. I do think the concept of it is, is, pretty frightening because he is the one killer that you can't get away from. Yes. You know, and that always kind of stayed with me uh, as, as to something that, you know, that, that was a strength of the movie. I agree. Um, but I had, I had come, uh, I had some experience with, with other movies by the time this one had come out. I mean, I was a, uh, depending on what time of year it came out, I was either a, a sophomore 
or uh, junior in high school. Mm-hmm. And yes, this was very popular. A lot of people were talking about this movie, uh, even at my school when I went to a Catholic school. But a lot of people were talking about this movie. So it was big. And, you know, I knew how big it was. Um, and for me, it, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it lived up to the hype at the time. Nice. Yeah, I, I love what you said there. And in fact, we've all said it many times before, but we really got to underscore this for this, especially since we're reviewing the franchise. Uh, it's genius. It's sheer brilliance that Wes Craven would create a monster that if you saw it and you were scared of this monster, like at the movie theater or whatever, if you happen to have nightmares about the monster, Freddy, then that's exactly where he attacks. That is sheer genius. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the origins of, of this idea, like where the concept came from and everything. I, uh, I'm sure everybody knows this cause it's become the stuff of legend, but uh, Josh, did you want to fill in the listeners on that? So my understanding is, is that uh, Craven's idea for this film came from the marriage of two distinct ideas. One was a series of news articles he'd read about something called Bengungat, which is uh, translated to nightmare death. And that um, mixed with this idea from the Old Testament of the sins of the parents being visited on the children. And it was kind of the combination of these two ideas that launched him into writing A Nightmare on Elm Street. So this nightmare death, the idea, it's similar to sleep paralysis. And uh, if people have seen the documentary The Nightmare, they'll know all about sleep paralysis. Maybe you've experienced it. I know a couple of our listeners mentioned uh, at HorrorMoviePodcast.com that they had suffered from sleep paralysis. I will say this is something I don't recommend looking up because – uh, supposedly the more you kind of think about it and get it into your subconscious, the higher your chances are of experiencing it yourself. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing so, it tonight. Yeah. So <laughs> don't, don't read a lot about sleep paralysis if you, if you don't know about it. But basically the idea is that you wake up and you think you're awake, but you're actually dreaming and you feel pinned to your bed and you can't move. And there's a dark stranger kind of standing over your bed, oftentimes with a hat and, and, um, in, <laughs> It, and and you can't move and can't do anything about it. And there are all kinds of theories about who this person actually is. But in the Asian Rim, you know, in Japan, Indonesia, um, the Philippines, and Laos, there were supposedly, legend says, 230 documented cases of these deaths of young men who were afraid to go to sleep. And one specific case in Laos, um, Wes Craven read about um, in the LA Times. And basically the story goes that this boy was afraid to go to sleep and his doctor being a physician started giving him sleeping pills after he, you know, refused to sleep like three nights in a row. And, um, you know, it went on and on and on. And eventually, um, the, he, the boy actually eventually fell asleep at night and his parents, uh, were awoken by the sound of thrashing and they went into his room and he was thrashing about and died in his sleep. And after he died, they found that he had been hiding these sleeping pills. He hadn't actually been taking them. And he had hidden in his nightstand, a coffee maker that, um, he had been using to try to keep himself awake because he was so scared to fall asleep. And, and it, so again, it's this idea of, um, Wes Craven said, well, maybe it's the parents fault. That's a cool idea. 
You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. maybe it has something to do with this kid's parents is why this happened to this kid. And, and again, there's supposedly 230 documented deaths in the 80s. Um, and there were a few newspaper art- articles about it in the United States in Chicago and Los Angeles. They were very brief, but uh, Craven just happened to uh, stumble upon it. And that's something I really appreciate about him because we talked about that in previous episodes, how he would find real life horror in the real world and then adapt it. It would inspire his his writing and his films. And I think that's super cool. Yeah, I'm going to say something. I want to say something bold because you said something bold at the beginning about nostalgia being the driving force for this film's fandom. I would say that the premise is so strong. This is one of the strongest ideas for a movie I've ever heard of. Um, And as I kind of submerged myself in research for this and revisited the films, um, I have not seen all of the films in the series still as we talk tonight. And I've only seen bits and pieces of most of the ones that I have seen, but the original was one I had seen off and on for years. But this viewing that I just did for it was the first time I actually, as an adult sat down and watched the movie and paid attention to it. And even though, yeah, there was a lot of things that were a little shoddy about it. I was very impressed with not only some of the filmmaking, but the, the basic premise just really, struck me so hard and I was, I don't know, I was kind of blown away and, and really impressed by Craven that he was able to kind of put these puzzle pieces together and create this totally unique horror movie. See, I give anybody that, I mean, I, I totally, this is one of the greatest premises in horror history. I think like, like the concept is brilliant. It's the execution that bothers me, especially the fact that um, Freddie is this, sometimes comedic clown-like character. It really bothers me that this... Not in this film, though. No, I don't think he was. Yeah, I don't think he was in the in the first movie. I don't think he was quite as comedic as he would become True, later but, on. But for example, it's like the scene out back when he's got the big wide arms. Now, I understand that... I'm a little torn. I understand that, okay, we're talking about a dreamscape, a dream world... And But that, that's one of the things that bothers me is the lack of parameters. I mean, something to really admire about this film is how it comes to be this seamless transition where we don't even realize the character has fallen asleep. I think that's really well done, and I admire that. But the dreamscape and the lack of parameters really bothers me because I like horror that's set in reality. And I realize our dreams are not reality, but it just takes me out of it when Freddy's got these giant... Wide arms, for example. Well, they are reality, or they're a reality that we've all experienced and can kind of relate to the oddness of what happens within your dreams. I mean, that to me is what's right. interesting. Like the idea that we've all, whether we have had sleep paralysis or not, have kind of experienced these situations in a dream where you're out of control and you kind of can't do anything about being pursued. And, you know, these are nightmares that I used to have all the time when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 me. Yeah, I I don't. I think when you're dealing with the dream world, I, I think it's it's. Don't you think it's almost required to make it a little more fantastic than usual? Yeah, I, mean, I think so. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I yeah, guess I, I just I, don't like being in the dream world. I, I don't like it, is what I, I okay. think. It's a matter of taste, I think. Sometimes, sometimes I, it works for me, sometimes it doesn't. The only two instances that don't work for me are, I think, back-to-back. The one you're talking about in the alleyway where his arms extend, to me, that just looks kind of shoddy. The effects yeah, don't Yeah, I form. agree. I agree. And then following that right up where he slices his fingers off and he's like, check this out. Like, I don't need that scene. Just cut that whole scene out. And I like this movie way better. (laughs) It started out great. I think the first opening dream sequence is so good. It's one of my favorite opening scenes from a horror movie I've seen in a long time. I don't like the whole, I don't like the construction of the glove part of it. I don't think that's quite as well done. Oh, I like that. It just it just doesn't seem very cinematic, I guess, the way it's shot. But that that dream sequence is very cinematic and very it kind of sucks you in. And I assume Tina was the lead of this movie. Like this seems like Tina's movie. Um, once she survives that kind of initial scare, you know. And so, it, if I didn't know that it was Nancy's movie, I would have been really following Tina. I think a lot more. Um, upon initial viewing. So I wondered if that was a surprise to people the first time they saw it. But, hmm. but anyway, I think, you know, so then it gets bad again in that alleyway scene. And it's really not until it really not until the phone looking moment that I think the movie gets kind of <laughs> cheesy again. I think mostly the way the dream stuff is handled is really cool. Like I love how she goes into the dream and she asks Johnny Depp to watch her and all of that. It really reminded me of um, the Foo Fighters music video Everlong. Have you guys ever seen that? No, I don't it's, think so. It's one of the coolest music videos ever. And obviously now that I have thought about it, it's clearly inspired by Nightmare on Elm Street. But, you know, if we're going to get the Tarantino version of Scream, I'd really like to see the Michel Gondry version of a Nightmare on Elm Street because <laughs> <laughs> the way he did that Foo Fighters video was Excellent, and it just wow. there, and, and it made me think. Oh, they could, you know, Craven could have gone so much further with these transitions of going into your dreams to help people, which of course he does later in Dream Warriors and some stuff. But. And it's funny because Michelle Gondry also uh, went into dreams. What was the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Yeah, it kind of which that I thought has that, 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 was, that was an amazing. He, I thought he did an amazing job with with the, and the uh, science the sort of, of sleep. World. The science yeah. of sleep is also kind of based on that idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's, so he must have really been influenced by Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> this is in Gondry's future. Now, before people freak out and um, leave us a hundred comments on the message board, since we're talking about the background of uh, Freddy Krueger and that concept, of course, it is also well known that uh, Fred Krueger was the name of a childhood bully that harassed and bothered Wes Craven, which That's shows right. up as well in The Last House on the Left, that villain Krug. Right. Um, so. and, and the street Elm Street was not only the street of the school that Craven taught at before he quit academics and started becoming a filmmaker, but it's also the street that uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated on. So that's kind of interesting. Oh, right. That is interesting. And, um, uh, and and also I, I ended up reading up a little more on it. Like I guess the colorful the colored sweater was supposedly based somewhat on the DC comics character Plastic Man. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you look up a picture of Plastic Man, you can see the stripes. And then um, I also heard that he Craven had found that those two colors were obnoxious together, that they kind of bothered the eye. Yeah, it was yeah. An, yeah. it was an article in uh, Scientific American that said that the two most clashing colors to the human retina are that like that 
those two colors right which there. is so funny because they're christmas colors like that's what i identify <laughs> with it. yeah red and green yeah that's true very true love christmas yeah exactly <laughs> but but so you guys it sounds like you're okay with um i mean you like the the having no parameters while being in the dream state i i think i do think I it's, it. it's something i think he had to do it i think he had to 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 make them as as you know and i he does set them up where you don't know that you're dreaming uh, at first and then he just he, he sort of cuts loose and i think that was required i think that's what you have to do if you're going to make a movie in the dream world I mean, what's the point of just having somebody, you know, walk outside and it's just, it's just like, just like the everyday. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't see, I don't know if, I think, I think he would have gotten more grief for doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm not super high on where the series takes the dream world, but no, I wish Craven initially had more money for this film because I, I would have only liked to have seen him take it further in this film. Yeah. Well, there are some sequences in this first film that are very impressive. Like, mm-hmm. we you know when when she's like Tina's like rolling up the wall and across the ceiling, and there is a ton of blood in this movie. And then, you know, when the Johnny Depp character in his uh, debut <laughs> right yes. introductory role, yeah. when he's sucked down into the bed, and then there's that blood geyser that comes up. I mean, right. that's pretty intense and and so those are really great sequences i do yeah. love that yeah I, I would say those are two of my favorite movie deaths of all time actually. yeah mm-hmm. and they're and they're extremely well shot and if you look at the imagery of that i mean it is arresting imagery compared to what we get in part two for instance <laughs> not to get into that yet but <laughs> right but it, you know craven clearly although he ripped off you know borrowed homaged a lot of these things from other places in horror that came before him he still was took the craft very seriously and got some really amazing shots during this film mm-hmm. on the tiny, tiny budget they had. Totally agree. Now, here, here's something that's peculiar to me. Clearly, I think there's no doubt at all that Freddy Krueger, I mean, this is a slasher film, but a lot of people, I, I mean, I hear a lot of people question whether this is a slasher or not even consider this a slasher. I think it's clearly a slasher. Uh-huh. Well, it, it, I mean, it depends. I, I think maybe what it is is the fact that he's he, he exists in the dream world. Um, yeah. Are they thinking maybe it's more supernatural because he is? Yeah. He is dead. Well, you know? like, so I, I can see I can see the argument. I agree with you. I think yeah. it's a slasher, and I've always considered it a slasher film. Right. But I, I'm sort of just seeing it from the other side. I can I can kind of understand where people are coming from. But Jason yeah. Voorhees is supernatural and well, presumably yes, he, dead like he is but he's time. also in the real world he, he's also walking around in, in the real world whereas freddy krueger yes he can get you in the dream world but for the most part i mean there are a couple exceptions for the most part can only get you in the dream world and and this is i mean i did not see this as a slasher at all until you kind of said that i mean i don't it makes sense because it does operate as a slasher in terms of you know the teens picked off one by one parents unable to help but i don't think i think of it as more of a supernatural film uh when i think of the character for that exact reason yeah i mean he even has like the weapon of choice and he's like this solo killer and yeah he had something even though he did many wrong things to earn the awful things that happened to him. I mean, he had this awful experience that made him the monster, more of the monster that he is and so uh-huh. forth. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's got that prior evil from Friday the 13th again with mm-hmm. the parents. Um, right. 
that idea that the parents' sins kind of like led to this nightmare that the kids are going through, literal nightmare that the kids are going through. But it, it also seems to riff like the Freddy monster actually riffs a, a, a little on the invisible man. I mean, you can see um, some invisible man stuff in this movie, which is funny mm-hmm. to say that. I think that's <laughs> you can no, see it. You see the invisible man stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying, but I, but you're right. You're right. You do see that. That's kind of cool. Now, now here's a little, maybe you guys can explain this to me. Maybe it's something I missed, but for example, when she, when Nancy burns her arm in class in order to wake herself up and escape the dream, um, you know, it was the pain that woke her up when was it, the thing is when they're being attacked and killed, obviously they're getting hurt and harmed. Like, why doesn't that wake them up if she can burn herself in a dream and wake herself up? That was kind of Maybe weird. that it, she's the one that's taking the initiative. Like for instance, I know in sleep paralysis. Yeah, that's what I would say. I know in sleep paralysis, you don't feel like you can move. You feel like you're trapped. But if you actually try in real life to move your finger or your tongue, supposedly, those will bring you out of it. So I don't know. Maybe it's just being proactive. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, good job, Josh. You were you were <laughs> defending it. That's nice. Okay. No, now. I'm just saying that makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, know, I think I, that I, scene I, is amazing. By the way, I mean, I think that's my that's another scene where I just think the the dreamscape of this is working so well for me. It's in that famous classroom scene that you get in every horror movie where the teacher is teaching a lesson that basically is telling you what the themes of the film relate back to in some class classical text. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. It's used in, you know, everything from Halloween to it follows. And, um, I just, you know, it's, it works so well here, but then all of a sudden Nancy's asleep. We see the blood on the ground. We see the body bag that again was referenced in scream three and Tina and this ghost kind of of Tina. And then all of a sudden we meet the hallway monitor who is dressed as Freddy Krueger and speaks to us as Freddy Krueger. And to me, that is almost as effective as the film gets right there because mm-hmm. it's about the body snatcher element that I love. It could be anywhere. It could be anything. You don't know when you're safe. And I, that to me is super terrifying And on, t- on top of the dream, you know, the sleeping idea. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think maybe I, I don't know what, what people, how people generally feel about like the hall monitor, for example, but that is precisely how dreams work, especially nightmares. Like it'll be someone <laughs> like, like that you don't really, you think it's one person in one way and then they open their mouths and it's a whole different story. I, I well, love we that. talked about, it follows how um, the director was inspired by his own childhood dream of seeing a friend of his walking toward him, but knowing in his mind, it wasn't actually him. Mm hmm. And that that's a total dream thing. And that totally happens in this movie. And, and I just, you know, again, I just wish I would like to see this idea teased out more because not necessarily in the way, again, that it was in the next seven films. But right. <laughs> so strong. This premise is so strong. I totally yeah. agree. Now, I know, Wolfman, didn't you want to talk about some instruments of death in this? Film? Well, I just thought it was interesting, this glove idea and how it's you know, it's described in the screenplay, actually, as his fingernails. He's got these long fingernails. It's kind of this claw, and it's so animalistic. But it's also connected to him physically. It's kind of part of him as opposed to an ordinary kitchen knife, which feels, which is scary in its own way because it's so mundane and common and in your home. But this is this is more extreme, but in a way more personalized because it's kind of his hand. It's kind of 
this meeting of Michael Jackson and Wolverine, both of which were really popular at the time when the movie came out. Yes, yes. Maybe maybe inspired the prop guy, but I think in the right. screenplay it may have just been described as his fingernails or claw because that's how the characters refer to it. And and I read a quote that Wes Craven had really felt that he wanted to use something like a little bit different from a knife because that was becoming pretty common. And so he thought, how about a glove with steak knives attached to it? So, mm. yeah, he had the special effects guy, Jim Doyle, work it up. And I guess he made like two models of the glove. And one one was called like the hero glove. And it was um, used when anything needed to be cut. And then there was a stunt glove that was like less lethal. So people didn't get hurt. But this idea of this killing thing and, you know, to me, having that again connected to his body makes him feel more like a boogeyman. You know, we think of Michael Myers as the boogeyman, but I think, I think Freddie's more the ultimate boogeyman, you right. know, in more of a classical sense. Yeah. Well, something that's really creepy about the glove is when the mom goes down in the basement and like pulls the glove mm-hmm. out of the like little furnace there that she has wrapped up. Like, why would you ever save that? That like, if I were yeah. Nancy in that scene, yeah. that's a little chilling. It's kind of weird. It's like, yeah, okay. Why? Why does she have this? <laughs> that reminded me of the recent movie um, Housebound, but it's like the idea is this has been in my our house my entire life. Like, <laughs> what? Right? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> that makes it so scary. I see what you're saying. It kind of brings it home. It's funny because the, for me, two of the weakest performances in in this film were from people who have been nominated for Academy Awards. Right. <laughs> and it's it's Ronnie Blakely as, as the mother and I, I Johnny Depp. Now, Johnny Depp, it's his first movie. You can cut him a little bit of slack. He was young. He was just getting started. Um, I don't oh, know what happened. I think Heather her. Langenkamp is way well, worse than Johnny Depp. Really? She See, I, I, she's, yeah, she's not, she's yeah. not good. She's not good. Nancy. But for some reason, maybe it's just from expecting more from Johnny Depp. Um, it's weird because she almost seems like a non-actor. Like yeah. her performance almost feels like we found this kid on the street and decided they should star in this film. Yeah. And she doesn't look like an actor. Or I mean, something. I like her look in terms of, she almost feels like um, Jennifer Garner in labyrinth. Like she just feels like an all American kid, uh-huh. but at the same time, yeah, she, her performance is just so atrocious and her mom is terrible on the op- opposite end of the spectrum. She's like, so overdoing it. And like, are you, do you think you're in like a music dance theater production right now or what's <laughs> happening? Yeah. And I heard yeah. someone say this, this isn't original to me, but it's like, this is a, she took her character from Nashville, her Academy Award. Right. Character from Nashville and just put it into this movie. <laughs> it's what it feels. It's almost feels that uh, way. Yeah. It does almost feel that way. That's funny. <laughs> so over the top and just mm-hmm. ridiculous. I wish we had more engagement from uh, John Saxon, the plays the l- l- police lieutenant dad. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I love yeah, he's him. He's always great. He's always great. He's I've loved him great. ever since um, Enter the Dragon. Enter right? the Dragon is his big one, yep. Yeah. The and thing it, I love about it is you've got John Saxon, um, who was Lieutenant Fuller in Black Christmas. Yes, so that's another one. Black yes. Christmas. Yes. in a cop role. Yep. And then his deputy is Joseph Whip, who is Sheriff Burke from Scream. So that's kind of fun, too. And I had never noticed that on any previous viewing until this one. I'm like, wait a minute. That's the sheriff from Scream. (laughs) (laughs) That's super cool. But, yeah, Yeah. I do wish that there was a way, like, that he could have been more engaged directly in the battle with Uh Freddy. But I understand they. I'm sure they wanted to 
convey this helplessness. And and in the ending, the way it ends, actually, it really strikes me. Like, even though when the car, the top on the car goes up and it's got the Freddy stripes on it, the fact that the windows are rolled up and they slowly drive away while the mom watches, that is absolutely chilling to me because it reminds me of... um you know, kids getting kidnapped. And since right. Freddie was a child murderer slash yeah. molester, I mean, th- that that really rings to that. Like, he's mm-hmm. stealing them away. And in that instance, the mom's not even, she doesn't even seem to be aware of it. Right. Yeah. And then they ruin it by pulling a blow-up doll version of her through the <laughs> keyhole in the window. <laughs> it was pretty shocking, though, I think. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think it worked the first time I saw it, it worked. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of, but it's almost like... um. You know, it's almost like a little exclamation point on the scene or something that's almost comedic. It's almost funny. No? I think no, it's no, funny. I didn't laugh the first time I saw it. That's I it thought they like. were going for Friday the 13th. Yeah, like a, like a surprise jump ending. Yep. Oh, okay. I got you. <laughs> the, the carry ending. But it's clearly a blow-up doll, like being dragged through the door. Well, I, I don't think it was really Ronnie. Like, no, I don't <laughs> think so. Like, I'm just saying it looks fake. Is that all. stunt actually ended her career. She could never walk <laughs> <Yeah>. again. <Right. laughs> I mean, it just it's it's very fake-looking, and I understand, but whatever. <laughs> okay. Right. So um, did you get through all the performance talk? Did you want to talk about any other performances, Dr. Shock? No, that, that those were the, the, the ones that uh, that stuck out. You know, okay. there were the ones just, but like I said, and, and with Johnny Depp, it's just knowing where Johnny Depp went and, and where his career went. It's funny. This was like the role of that, that he could have played his whole career. He could have played sort of the, the, the good looking guy, um, uh, you know, that part where he's just always sort of like the handsome lead. But I, I like the fact that he took his career in a much different direction. With with yeah. like his his work with Tim Burton, and he took the roles that were not always the most glamorous, but that were very interesting, and I and I liked that about him. But you know, you look at this and you say, okay, this is just going to be one of these sort of teen actors. He's going to go on. He's going to sort of play these these roles, maybe in horror films, maybe in comedies or whatever. And he just took it in a much different direction. Uh, and I really, I, I always admired that about him. Like he didn't want to be, he could have made, he could have made millions just doing that, mm-hmm. you know, but he challenged yeah. himself and he took it in, in, in other, in other directions. And I really, that that's always struck me about him. And I think, I think to a point Brad Pitt has done that as well. I don't know if he's gotten a chance to do it as much and he doesn't get, I don't think he gets the credit for it that he does. But I even think Brad Pitt has done that a little bit, you <laughs> yeah, know, they, like with, with they with play against like, their looks. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, uh, and and I think that he could have done Thelma and Louise for the rest of his career and just, right. you know, had people pour water on him shirtless for the rest right. of his days. Well, as we record this, I mean, just this past weekend, I saw Johnny Depp starring in Black Mass, which is that he plays the gangster, yeah, uh, Whitey Bulger, right. and uh, very unflattering. Yeah, and it's incredible. Like, the performance is very strong. He could potentially earn, I mean, it's worthy of earning at least an Oscar nod. I'm not saying he should win, but I think maybe a little recognition there. But seeing that contrasted to watching him here in his first film, there's a huge, like, difference and a lot of growth there for this Mm -hmm. performer. And, like, yeah, and like I said, I always give him a little slack because it is his first, it's his first time, and I think... Um, from what I understand, 
he accompanied. Oh boy, who's now the actor's name just slipped my mind. The one, the one who played um, Freddy in the remake. Oh, oh yeah, the, the Earl Haley. Yes, Jackie I, Earl Haley. Jackie Earl Haley. Jackie Earl Haley um, went to try out for that role, and Johnny Depp went with him because they were friends. <laughs> and Johnny Depp ended up getting the role. I thought it was interesting that Jackie Earl Haley actually tried to get into the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, that's what, well, the weird thing about it is that character was written as a jock. It's almost like Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate. Like, it was supposed to be for a big buff football player guy. Right, right. And and apparently, Wes Craven's tight. daughter saw Johnny Depp's headshot, and she's like, ooh, cast this guy. He's hot. <laughs> and uh, Craven's like, really? He looks sickly to me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's but, funny. Uh, so that started his career. That's uh, very lucky for him that Wes Craven's daughter saw his headshot. Um, I have three more casting things actually I wanted to talk about really quick. Okay. Briefly, Lynn Shay, who's the teacher. Love her. We'll recognize yeah. her as uh, the dirty old lady from uh, the Fairly Brothers movies, but also, of course, from the Insidious films. And um, she is yeah. great. And Dead, and dead End, and dead end, which I thought yes. was great in that as well. Oh, yeah, Dead End. I also wanted to talk about Rod, who is the weirdest character. Like, I don't know why he's hanging out with this group of kids, but um, (laughs) he's played by, I don't even know how to pronounce the name, Jesu Garcia. But he was credited at the time as Nick Corey because apparently um, he was Mexican, but his agents told him, you'll never work in Hollywood if people know you're Latin American. You need to pretend you're Italian. So he he was trying to pass in Hollywood as an Italian. Um, he had this fake accent that he did, and he was going by the name Nick Corey at the time. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, and and I love how he's kind of a not real. He's kind of a sociopath in this in this role. It's like yeah, yeah. Why is that character, as you said, why is he hanging out with these kids? Well, they're all jerks. I mean, the the dialogue in this film. You know, we were talking about how bad the kids were in Scream and how awful of people they were. These kids are just as bad. <laughs> Yeah. And Rod, Rod being the worst of them, but mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. And then the one casting thing we haven't talked about yet is Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Ah, very true. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, he's short. Is he really short? <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> he mean, like a midget in that in that um alleyway scene. Well, he's five nine and three fourths. Wow, but... so he's not that short, and he no. looks really tiny in the movie. I don't know if it was a stunt double or what, but. He does not look very imposing in this film, I will say, physically. And he's really thin, actually. So, yeah, I think they, they really depend on, like, the the burnt appearance and the glove to try to make him menacing. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, he's not, like, a huge, you know, Jason Voorhees-type figure. Mm-mm. As much as I don't love the Freddy character, you know, as it goes on and on, I think he really has created a pretty rich character by the time we get to... Like Freddy versus Jason, for instance. Um, and there's none of that in this movie. He's just really one note. We really don't even see him for like more than half of the film. He's just kind of like glimpses at the claw and the sheet ripping and the hat, but we don't actually know who Freddy Krueger is for like the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. And we don't get the backstory until very close to the end. And it doesn't go that deep into it once we do get it. Yeah. Right. And one interesting thing about Robert England, this isn't much of a coincidence, but the the woman that he's been married to ever since October 1988, her first name is Nancy. <laughs> so, huh. that's not a big deal, but 
Just saying. It is creepy, though. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. kind of weird in a Mostly way. Mostly for her, I would think. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Well, I remember, you know, I he stands out to me a lot from um, the 1977 flick, Eaten Alive, where he plays Buck. I mean, uh. I wonder... I'm not super familiar with his filmography. I'm trying to scroll back through here. That is a really crazy role for him. It almost feels like a porn movie or something. It, it, yeah, it does. And um, was that one of his first horror appearances? I think. I don't know. Uh, it was well, real- he was in. He was in um, Roger Corman's Galaxy of Terror, also, which okay. was sort of an all-star cast. That Sid Haig in there. Yeah, I think um, that was later, though, wasn't it? Mm, well, no, it wasn't. It was before Nightmare on Elm Street. But but I'm talking after eating alive. Oh yeah, it was after it was after eating alive. Yeah, so maybe eating alive was his first horror flick. Because yeah, it looks like the other stuff. None of the titles, at least, scream horror to me. <laughs> okay. So, but yeah, so I, I wonder how. Are, are you, were you saying, Josh, that you wonder how he ended up getting cast for this role? No, I just what? thought it was interesting that he's not much of a character, kind of going to your original point. I don't think Freddie is very interesting in this film. He gets wacky as it goes on, but I don't think he's super intimidating. He may have been for a first time viewer, you know, he is creepy looking, but like, you know, his big shot in the movie is where he says like, this is God or something. And that's like the classic Freddie pose, but, he, I don't know. Other than that, he just doesn't look that menacing to me. It's more the idea of him of not seeing him that's scary. Like I thought the Invisible Man scenes, like the scene in the jail cell, I thought was scarier than. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that was my phone sounding like RTD too. I don't know if you heard that. I did a little bit. <laughs> I'm noticing in the cast here also. It, it looks like um, Wes Craven's wife played the nurse. Oh, nice. Mini Mimi Craven. I, I mean, I guess is soon to be ex-wife because they only were married for another three years after that. But, uh, yeah, I just saw the name Craven and I was, like, Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you about this as far as like the Freddie character goes, what you said, I think is right. There's not a lot of, um, nuance to this particular, like first, first version of his character in the first film. But, he does remind me a little bit of the Joker from Batman. He's a little bit Joker-like because as he's chasing yeah. her... Or you know, the Riddler, even. Yeah, he's yeah, old, maybe the Riddler. cackling yeah. and laughing. Mm-hmm. and um, So I, I wonder. I mean, it just makes me wonder if he drew upon any of that kind of source material to develop this character. I think, I think later on, definitely. Um, it's possible. It's possible. So this was a weird experience because um, I'm more used to the theme of this film having heard it through Fresh Prince. Same. <laughs> and he, they change it. Like, I don't know if you noticed that, but that main piano theme just has a couple different notes in it. Um, yeah. The movie. And so it's, it kept sounding wrong to me when I was listening, watching the movie. I'm like, eh, that's not where oh, that note's wrong. That, that's not yeah. going too long. <laughs> that was weird. And the, the, the score is kind of clunky and feels a little jumbly to me, but it was weird because between the combination of the fresh prints and it follows, which I love that score. And, and I've listened to it so many times now. And it clearly is very heavily influenced, not only on Carpenter, but definitely very much on a nightmare on Elm street. It was weird. Like I actually loved this score despite having a lot of problems with it while I was watching the movie, but it, there was something about the tone of it. Yeah. 
that just really worked for me. I loved it flat out, I 100%. And yes, uh, some of it was fondness of my association with the <laughs> Fresh Prince song. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now, did it strike anybody else? Like, I know that typically um, the characters in a slasher film are in, like, a lot of times they'll be in high school and they'll be younger. But, you know, you have, like, people in their 20s or late 20s playing like you know 18 year olds but the fact that when they said that they were 15 years old in this film uh, I, I don't know like 15 years old uh, now that I'm an old man of 39 like that seems uh, really really young to me it was kind of flipped me out a little bit and I'm like yeah, Rod oh, looks these... like he's almost 30 yeah. yeah and it's like oh yeah. these guys are hooking up and they're 15 Johnny Depp I believe was could believe he was 15 he looks very tiny but uh-huh. yeah but it was funny yeah when nancy says like i look like i'm 20 yeah like, you <laughs> are actually in real life 19 at the time of filming this so it's not that <laughs> right right it's hilarious what about so you mentioned the the scene where freddie cuts off his fingers and we, we should talk about his appearance here in a minute his makeup and so forth but uh he cuts off his fingers and then when he like slices open his chest and stomach and you see all the worms and maggots and and there's like this green sludge that that kind of squirts out of him. I I wondered about that. It's like okay, I wonder if they're showing us that he can harm himself and it doesn't matter cuz he's in this dream world. But also um it's always off-putting. It's something really um grotesque. And I, I don't know, did you guys have any thoughts on that, or is it just to be gross, do you think? I mean, it's it's definitely just to be gross, but I also yeah. thought I thought there was an element there of him saying, you can't hurt me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, um, and you know, making the kids kind of feel hopeless about the, their ability to fight back. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, can, I can get you, but you can't get me, because I, I this is my, like, it's his turf. It, this is his world, and he can... He's the one in control, even though it's your dream. He's the one setting up all of the parameters, and right. and 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 so he's showing you. It's like, you know, you're done. It basically, is what it is, is. Is is I'm I'm the one I'm the one steering this whole thing, and and you're not going to get away from me. And speaking of that, it's kind of brilliant um, how they go to that sleep clinic, and it's really neat to have her hooked <laughs> up. Yeah, honestly, I think it's really neat to have her hooked up to this study of sleep, you know, and they're watching her. And I was, it impressed me a little bit, the fact that they didn't show us that particular exchange with Freddie. They didn't feel like they needed to show us that. I wasn't going to get into this, but since you brought it up, we better, we better have it out over the scene. Um, Okay. I I was, I, you know, I did so much preparation so quickly for this. I can't remember to cite my sources. So I feel bad using other people's material without, acknowledging them, but I wrote this down in my notes and I thought it was so funny. I don't remember where I read this or heard this, but first of all, they go to the sleep clinic, which is called the Springwood dream clinic, which <laughs> it's like, what? They just have a dream clinic in every small town in America. <laughs> like, Of course they've got a dream clinic. Oh, and it's also walk-ins available. Like just come on in. <laughs> I believe it was called the sleep Institute. It was it was the Springwood then Sleep Institute. Yeah, yeah, place. Sleep Institute. I don't think it was Dream Clinic. That sounds like a Barbie thing. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean the the idea that it's in this small town just seems ridiculous to me. Like you would have to travel 
to New York or Los Angeles probably to get a legitimate dream, like sleep analysis happening here. Well, especially no, uh, in 1984. Oh, well maybe in 80, you know, 84, you're probably right. Cause I was going to say, I live in about as small a town as you can get. I mean, this is, you know, they, you give directions around here. It's make a left at the cow, but you go about 10 miles up the road and we do have a sleep clinic. <laughs> I love, I, I love all the analysis of it. And I like, you know, it feels like the exorcist, which is, I'm sure where he got the idea and, you know, and the helplessness of the parents and the doctors. And so that, that all works for me. I think that's great, but it's so funny how wackadoo the doctors are. This is the thing that I was thinking was so funny that I wrote down from this other guy. The doctor says to him, <laughs> dream or to Nancy, mis- dreams are mysteries, incredible body, hocus pocus, like, this is the doctor that's <laughs> Yeah, he said he says that to the mother when he's when she's like what are dreams anyway? Yeah. And that's kind of his his response and wow. he admits that we don't really know exactly what it is. Uh-huh. Yeah, but that is not the kind of answer you want the doctor telling you when you, it's, it's like having someone give you a tattoo who's or it's like what did the guy say? The guy that I was reading, he was like um it's like if you went to the dentist and he says Teeth are magical stones of life that (laughs) live in your gums. Like, no, I want the get the real dentist in here. Yeah, that's that's pretty funny. But do you know what is even more um, bizarre and ridiculous than that? How about the fact that uh, they ostensibly, I mean, it seemed that no one attended the funeral for the dead friend, Tina, but they attended the funeral for Rod, the guy who supposedly <laughs> killed Tina. Like I'm like, what the heck is that? Only to kind of say that he deserved it because he lived by the sword, so he must die by the sword. Yeah, yeah, they had to get that line in there. Um, this, But this is another weird thing about the dream clinic is she proves that it's real. She comes out of her dream. First of all, her results are off the charts. The doctor has never seen anything like this. She pulls a hat out of the dream. She's bleeding. <laughs> And still, everyone's like, "Yeah, let's send her home. She's probably fine." <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. It's it, so bizarre, and it is problematic that way because the mother. I mean, she comes up with all this Freddy Krueger information, and the mother never really like faces the facts on that. It's like, I, it doesn't make sense. They never justify the mother's dismissal of Nancy's concerns. Yeah. Just, I mean, you know, it's like, it's weird. Of course, they wouldn't expect that he would come back from the dead and haunt their children in dreams on one hand. But on the second hand, as soon as they hear evidence that he is involved with it, they should be coming together as a parent group to figure out how they're going to solve this problem, which apparently they do in, in later films. But I would have liked to see this happen um, in this movie. I want to see more with the parents. I want to understand their deep, dark secrets. I want to see them get together and talk about what they've done. And I don't know. That seems interesting to me as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah, I agree. Here's another weird thing that I don't get in the later movies, Freddie. And even in this movie, Freddie exists on fear, right? So as long as you allow him to fear you, he grows in strength. Is this correct? Do I have this right? That's the basic premise, Uh right? Yeah. Yeah, Most of the time. Turns your back on him. He loses his power. So, the idea is essentially like your dreams can't scare you if you don't let them is basically the, the idea in the film. So in that, if that's the case, why is he having Rod look like he committed suicide? Why is he faking this murder? He should be like, he does in later films be carving into people's bodies. Like he does in Freddie versus Jason, Jason's back or Freddie's back. 
because he's trying to incite fear in these people. And it doesn't make sense that he is killing these people kind of secretly in the, like the way he kills Rod. Uh, unless, unless he's trying to, uh, unless, you know, cause the kids are already aware of him. So they're already going to be scared unless he's trying to somehow mask it from the parents. Doesn't he kind of want his legend to grow and grow? Isn't that kind of the... Well, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think so, but I don't know if he's... Yeah, I, s- I see what you're saying, and I'm, I'm stretching here. I have no idea. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, I have no idea <laughs> if, what, if what I'm saying was, was even thought of at the time. I mean, I'm just throwing that out there now, and it's not even anything I've really considered. But I'm with but you, I'm Dave. Thinking if, yeah, I'm just thinking if he was... He, the kids already know, and they're going to be scared because their friends are dying, and they know what's killing them. But by having it look like a suicide and whatnot or another person being murdered by someone else that the parents aren't going to catch on right away. Yeah, it's another way to terrorize the kids. That, that's that's how I read and I, it. But but again, like I said, I have no idea if, if any of that was even considered at the, at the time of making the movie. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about before we wrap up, let's make sure we get into the the look of Freddy Krueger. Um, Josh, start us off on that. What did you want to say about Freddy's appearance as a monster? Oh, I mean, I've said pretty much everything I wanted to say. I just like the iconic look of him. Um, I like, you know, that he's got a silhouette, basically. You can see, oh, this is Freddy Krueger. He's got the sweater, he's got the hat, he's got the glove. I love how the glove plays into kind of this primal claw idea and that it's his fingernails. It's part of his body. It really personalizes the violence and makes it scarier to me. And the burning um, is interesting in how it plays into the backstory. I just wish there was more of that in the, in the body of the film. I wish we got a little deeper into that stuff. Cause I think that's the most interesting thing that's happening for me. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Shock, do you have anything to say about his appearance? No, I, I think it, I think it worked. I think it, um, you know, it, it, it made him, it made him frightening, yeah. you know, the, the, the burn victim. And I think we've all known somebody who's, uh, maybe not to that extent, but I mean, I, I know I had gone to school with, uh, with a kid who had, uh, the, the one side of his face had been burned. Um, and I think part of, part of his hand and arm and you just see that and, you know, you think of what that pain must've been. Oh my goodness! I mean, you know, just burning yourself on the on grabbing something that's hot just briefly, and how it hurts forever. And how it hurts like that, yeah. I yeah. Mean, you wonder what sort of pain that what it is, and somebody who would have been completely engulfed like Fred Krueger um, would have certainly gone insane. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's what's. So powerful about having him as a burned character because, especially as burned as badly as he obviously is, because, yeah, burn victims, um, because I've known people like that too, and it hurts, you know, it it hurts indefinitely. It's painful. You burn your hand, even when you're putting water on it or you put ice on it, it continues to hurt. It continues almost like it's burning, it's still burrowing in, like the, the heat is still burrowing into your into your skin and, and into the muscle and everything. And, and that's just, and that's something where it, it, it'll just leave a little red mark. You know, that's not, that's not even getting to the point that it's, right. it's destroying the skin or, or the muscle tissue. Yeah. And that's, what's so interesting about him because like, it's almost like he has to um, live quote unquote, live with his sins, so to speak. Yeah. 
But and 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 when I mean it's something like I know you always go back to like real life horror, but if you think back to um, nine eleven, where you had people jumping from high atop skyscrapers to escape the heat. Yeah, yeah. You know, it it just it really it just it's just you think about it, and you like that would probably be one of the worst ways to go. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I can't even imagine it. Yeah. So yeah, he has a, a very effective appearance, and of course, definitely an iconic monster. Uh-huh. So, and one last thing before we wrap up, Wolfman Josh, I think you had another note about the production for this. Um, I was just going to mention Bob Shea. Um, we, you know, we mentioned Lynn Shea, the actress. Her brother Bob Shea was the producer of this film, and he was the creator of New Line Cinema, the CEO, president. I don't know what he was. He basically built New Line from the ground up, largely on the back of Freddy Krueger. But at the time he started his company, he was literally distributing films out of the back of his car. And um, he is kind of the Bob and Harvey Weinstein of New Line. Like he's kind of the Harvey Scissorhands when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to the um, you know the Freddy Krueger movies because he you know he really needed this to succeed. This was their bread and butter of a New Line for a long time. And he was also kind of this frustrated director. And so there's some pretty interesting behind the scenes stories about the making of this film where it's kind of like he wanted to be a creative producer, not just a businessman. Like he really wanted to kind of be involved in a lot of the creative things and him and Craven really butted heads over this. And it had a lot to do with why Craven had minimal involvement later on in the series because these guys just did not get along very well. And one of the big scenes that he was involved with, one thing he wanted to do that Craven didn't want to do was the walking up the stairs scene where the feet are kind of like melting into the carpet. Oh yeah. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And that was Bob Shea's idea. And I believe he even directed that scene or at least called action or something on that scene. And that was kind of a, a way for Craven and him to kind of make peace because they had been at each other's throats. I think most of the production. And, Um, And by the way, I did like that scene just because when you're in a dream, you can't run fast enough. There's always something that seems yeah. to be inhibiting your right. escape. So That's right. what it feels like, for sure, yeah. Yeah, so that was pretty effective, I Made thought. with oatmeal, as I understand. Oh, nice. All what those oats can do. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So, um, I think that just about wraps up our review of uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Let's move into our uh, just the final thoughts and our ratings. And I'll kick it off. Uh, this is definitely attached to my childhood and the days of, you know, enjoying being scared. I thought it was fun to be afraid of Freddy along with my friends. And yeah, I was afraid of Freddy back in the day. I was really young. But uh, <laughs> developing my own horror taste as a jaded, grouchy adult who doesn't really like horror comedy or <laughs> not that this is comedy, but um, you know, I've, I've really cooled off on Freddie and he, he's one of my, um, he, he's not one of my favorite monsters. I'll say that, but I can appreciate his iconic status. I can recognize that. I think Robert England is tremendous in this role. And I think the film is decent. I mean, it's the um, lesser of all the evils that follow it. <laughs> The least of the evils. But uh, I think it's definitely worth watching at least once if you've never seen it. And for me, this is like a 7 out of 10. And I, I call it a, a must-see once rental. What do you <laughs> say, Dr. Shock? Um, 
I say I'm. If you give this one a seven, I'm real interested to see what you give some of the sequels. <laughs> but um, now, for me, uh, yeah, this is well. We've gone into it already. It's it's it's. This is a part of my my childhood, as it was for for many people, and it is genuinely frightening with the premise, especially. Uh, I did like. A lot. Of, I liked a lot of the kills. I thought, and with with the gore, uh, I thought it was strong. And I thought that Freddy did achieve that status, you know, that that Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers, uh, and it was mostly due to this film. And so I'm I'm going to give it a nine. And I say you got to own this one. Okay, nine and buy it. What do you say, Wolfman Josh? Um. I'm... Agree with both of you, I guess. I think you can't argue that I think Freddy becomes the most iconic monster um, of the new era. I think he kind of surpasses Freddy and, I'm oh, sorry, Jason and Michael Myers um, in terms of pop culture. He definitely was the one that I was most terrified of as a child, the one that I thought about all the time. I was, you know, haunted my dreams, even though I hadn't even really seen the movies for the most part. And so uh, that's effective. And I think the poster... So iconic for me, the bathtub scene, just everyone has seen that claw in the bathtub shot. Uh-huh. It is so powerful. And even where the scene goes after that is really strong. Um, I just love a lot of this dream imagery. There's, there's a scene, it's right after the hall monitor scene where Nancy's in the hallway and there are just leaves blowing in the hallway. And you don't think about it at first, but it's got this awesome, it's just such a great Halloween-y fall feel to have her standing in the school hallway and all of a sudden there's a gust of wind and leaves are flying by. Just so cool. And (laughs) I love all of that. And I love a lot of the dream stuff. Unfortunately for me, there's as much about the film that doesn't work for me. I really don't like the stuff that feels more like Freddy. Like, hey, check this out. And you know, the phone licking and the car top, it just feels a little cartoonish to me. It feels a little Looney Tunes, and I don't yeah. love that in a horror movie. And so that's that's my problem with it. But I the premise is so strong that I almost have to give it, because I could almost give it a 10 just for the premise, but then all the other stuff knocks it down. Right. Um, I still want to see the Michel Gondry version of this. Everybody check out the Foo Fighters video, Everlong, and imagine this guy directing... Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but um, I'm going to give this a seven and I'm going to say it's just barely a buy it for me. I mean, it's a classic film, so it's one you can't go wrong owning, but this is not a strong buy recommendation, but it is a a buy recommendation. Nice. Yeah. And I I should say too, I mean, my seven, like all seven points are basically for the premise. Because so, I, I am dazzled by that premise, but I love it. So Josh says it's a seven. He says buy it. Doc says it's a nine. Buy it. I say it's a seven. Must see rental. Okay, awesome. Well, that wraps up our first part of our five-part series of Nightmare on Elm Street coverage. I am positive we will get feedback on this episode. Oh yeah. So bring it. Let us know yeah. what you think. We want to hear your thoughts. Because remember, listeners, at the end. Um, Josh does a tremendous job every time of like helping to compile the um, listener feedback so we can get a really good picture of what you all think of this series. So make sure you start weighing in now and, um, you know, we'd love to hear it. Anyway, so that wraps up episode 70 of Horror Movie Podcast. We're grateful that you were here listening and we hope you join us next Friday for episode 71 when we'll be covering two and three. I believe, if I'm not mistaken. 
We'll have some special guests who are big time Freddy fans, so never fear. You're not stuck with us for the entire duration of this <laughs> reviewing process. We are bringing in some hardcore Freddy files to defend his honor. Yes, we are. Yes, um, that'll be fun. And so uh, before we run, though, I want to make sure that the listeners know where to find all my friends here and all of the things that you're into. Dr. Shock, tell them where they can find more of you on the internet. Okay. Um, Not that one site, though, because you got in trouble with your wife from that one. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not able to discuss that at this point. Um, you can find me at dvdinfatuation.com. Um, on Twitter, I'm at dvdinfatuation. Uh, check out the show notes for my uh, Facebook link. And um, also check me out on uh, Land of the Creeps. Uh, another podcast which is uh, landofthecreeps.blogspot.com okay what are land of the creeps guys doing for um what are you guys doing for halloween this year well you know what it's interesting because we're, we're sort of um still sort of up in the air about that we're not doing any franchises or anything um and i i did i wasn't able to i wasn't able to make this this last episode but uh everybody else got together and they actually talked about what movies they watch for halloween uh, and what ones they plan to watch this coming year, uh, and what ones they historically watch for the season. Love it. Uh, and they, that's what the next episode is about. Again, I wasn't able to be on that one, um, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. Okay, great. Thank you. What about you, Wolfman Josh? Um, you can find me at MovieStreamCast.com reviewing short, short reviews of online streaming films, sometimes horror, not always. Um... Currently, we are reviewing the current season of Survivor every couple weeks. I'm a huge Survivor fan. I want you guys to know how much I sacrificed to do this recording. As we record this episode, tonight is the premiere of season 31 of Survivor. And a good good friend of mine, um, Jonas, was on the show. And he invited me, I'm in Utah right now, to a premiere party with all of the Survivors from Utah that have ever played the game, which includes some of the coolest winners ever on the show Todd Herzog and Tyson Apostle are all going to be at this party tonight and I instead skipped that to come talk about a monster <laughs> that I'm not even that fond of so that's how much I love the horror movie podcast community I love you guys and um, please interact with us and if they knew how much you love Survivor they would really appreciate what kind of sacrifice yeah. that was wow exactly um, some of them do know. Some of them, you know what? David from Scarborough has become a Survivor fan. You guys, I know that that's you know I, not this is maybe not the place to talk about it, but I'm so happy. And I, you know, some of the listeners made deals with me, like if you watch Firefly, then we'll watch Survivor. If you watch Game of Thrones, then we'll watch Survivor. And I got myself into all these deals where I have to watch like 13 television series. But I was able to get a bunch of them to watch the show with me. David, since we made this deal at the time of this recording, has watched 11 seasons of Survivor. Wow. In the the last month, you guys. Wow, Wow, David. Hardcore. Well done. He's hooked. Um, two. I sorry to do this. Two last points I forgot to mention um, that I just saw in my notes is mostly just how influential Nightmare on Elm Street was to a lot of other films. I pre- that was one thing I really took away from watching the films. Like, oh wow, like I've seen this and this movie and this and that movie. And I've mentioned Scream Three and It Follows, and those were big ones. But one thing that I noticed for the first time is the CGI effect where Freddy kind of comes out of the wall above Nancy's bed mm-hmm. and. In the movie Frighteners, which is a Peter Jackson film that I love, it's just a fun little horror comedy. It's really a blast. 
And there's a CGI effect there where the ghosts are kind of in the walls. And that was something that I was always so blown away with in that film. That CGI does not hold up well over time. And honestly, Back to the uh, not Back to the Future, but A Nightmare on Elm Street, all these years earlier, 1984, looks just about as good as Frighteners did then. Obviously, mm-hmm. Frighteners is more yep. involved, but yeah, uh, that was interesting to me. I'm with you. So anyway, check me out on Movie Streamcast. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Icarus Arts. Please do find me on Twitter. We'd love to chat with the listeners and looking forward to our next coverage be fun that's right and i just want people to know in october we're we're doing a 31 days of horror blogging there on our website you're gonna be able to read blogs on our site and where josh and i um fail and can't post blogs we have dr shock our secret weapon who will make sure that we have something for the whole month right doc and i've yep and i've already selected my 31 movies uh, that I'm going to be watching for your site, yeah, because you're you're doing 31 on doing DVD 31 infatuation. On DVD infatuation, yes. And whereas last year I just did a whole bunch of movies post, uh, you know, that were released post 2000, mm-hmm. which I did love that. I love doing that because I, I actually saw a lot of movies that I might not have otherwise gotten to. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Um, this year I'm I'm definitely mixing it up a bit, and um, I even have a uh, I even have a silent movie in there that I'm going to be watching, uh, but then also taking it all the way up to um, to modern day as well. So it's nice. just going to be a mixture this year round, plus getting to a few um, classics that I have not gotten to a a trilogy of uh, vampire movies from the 80s that I have not yet covered um, that I I feel I'm uh, have sort of been hanging over my head that I have not covered any of these three. Uh, they're going to be in there and um, just a variety of others. For the listeners, seriously, if you have not checked out DVDinfatuation.com, I am mad at you right now, like literally mad at you because I've been telling you people for years now, this guy, Dr. Shock here, you do, I, it's incredible. You watch a movie a day every single day, so check it out if you haven't yet. Right, Dave? Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, but, well, uh, I'm really yeah. proud of you. I, I really am. I can't believe what you pull off over there. It's insane. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. That is incredible. So, listeners out there, I know that we like to celebrate Halloween all month long, and so I want to give you a couple of the other really special things you should check out, in addition to the things we've discussed thus far. Make sure you go check out Spooky Flicks Fest. That's Joel Robertson's special, like, month-long Halloween celebration that they yeah, do over so, there at Forgotten Flicks for I'm so members. upset. I'm so upset. This is the first year I'm not going to be on it, I think, in, like, four years. Oh, that's painful. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm upset. I just, I just, I couldn't fit it in. Joel is a very, very magnetic personality, and he's a great host for the show. He's hilarious, um, too. I mean, he's, like, yeah. one of the funniest people I've ever met. And Yes, yeah, absolutely. I'm with you, and I got the, I had the honor of uh, reviewing The Changeling with them. The, nice. Yeah. I, I that's well, pretty freaky. So you're you're you going to give us a spoiler as what you thought of the Changeling? Well, of course I love. It. I mean, it's a it's an '80s horror classic for uh-huh. sure. And uh-huh. even though I'm not a ghost movie guy, I mean, you got to nope. respect the Changeling. But but how cool is that seance scene? Oh, it's it's super cool. Yeah. So 
So make sure you're checking out Spooky Flicks Fest and watch for um, our Changeling review. They got lots of other stuff over there as well. And then one other place that you have got to check out for Halloween is the Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast with uh, Ron Martin and Little Miss Horror Nerd. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> Ron is doing the coolest thing this Halloween. He, he's doing a lot of... Um, like real life type of horror stuff like for example just i was on there um to review the war of the worlds broadcast the radio broadcast by orson wells with him and so he's combining a lot of neat stuff like that and um it's just a blast and i cannot wait to hear his coverage so everybody out there you can find it at zombie7.com i'll have it linked in the show notes but make sure you check out what those guys are doing because it's really cool and then finally um it's not really a halloween show but it's a bunch of clowns if you think clowns are scary maybe (laughs) moviepodcastweekly.com our sister show to this um dave i don't know if you've been listening to that lately but the past like i don't know a couple of months it's been just pure insanity (laughs) like (laughs) there is a really weird crazy dynamic on there we've got a new co-host his name is uh, Geekcast Rye or Ryan Elliott, and he's from the Geekcast Live podcast. And that guy has really, um, he's put a quirky, an even quirkier slant on our show. So I think you guys will enjoy it. So if you like movies, uh, movie releases of all genres, the new stuff that's in theaters, check out moviepodcastweekly.com. Yeah. And we love your comments, as we've said. Um, so make sure you get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community and leave us a comment in the show notes for this episode or any episode for that matter and you can also email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com you can call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789 and you can find all of our past episodes including the weekly horror movie podcast and horror metropolis at our website horrormoviepodcast.com you can subscribe free in iTunes and you can follow us on Twitter at horrormoviecast I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. That'll be linked in the show notes. And I think that's it for episode 70. So we thank you for listening and join us again next Friday for our continuing coverage of A Nightmare on Elm Street franchise on Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Soap was sweating, man, I was bugging. I checked the clock, it had stopped at 12.30. It had melted, it was so darn hot, and I was thirsty. I went downstairs to grab some juice, so I coat, flipped the TV off, and then I almost choked when I heard this awful voice coming from behind. It said, Man, I ain't even wait to see who it was. Broke outside my drawers and screamed so long, cuz. Got halfway up the block, I calmed down and stopped screaming, then thought, Oh, I can't, I must be dreaming. I strolled back home with a grin on my grill. I figured since this is a dream, I might as well get ill. I walked in the house, the big, bad, fresh prince. But Freddy killed all that noise real quick. He grabbed me by my neck and said, Here's what we'll do. We got a lot of work here. Me and you, the souls of your friends, you and I will play. I said, yo, Fred, I think you got me all wrong. I ain't partners with nobody with nails that long. 
took. I'll be honest, man, this team won't work. The girls won't be on you, Bridge, your face is all burned. I pat him on the shoulder, said thanks for stopping by. Then I opened up the door and said, take care, guy. He got mad, drew back his arm, and slashed my shirt.